Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Today's episode, I'm speaking with Puck's Tina Nguyen. Tina is a writer who grew up on the American right. She did all of the fellowships, the academic programs, and the stints in journalism and activism that anyone would need to understand the broad picture of how the right has worked in this country since the Obama administration. I think a lot of folks who are drawn to this podcast are folks who want to understand how the left and the right are shifting. And I think looking at this issue through the perspective of Tina's experiences is just so helpful. I said this to her after the recording, but I haven't read any other books that are just this open about how the institutions, the donors, everything that is brought together here works. So if you're a young person who would like to understand how it actually works from a getting into political power perspective, or you're older and just want to understand who the people are who you're turning to for your news or your analysis or even your elected offices, this is just so helpful. So hope you all enjoy the conversation. Huge thank you to the Foundation for American Innovation for supporting the work of this podcast. And by the way, hope you all enjoyed Sagar and my exclusive Supercast episode that came out over the weekend. If you'd like to listen to that full conversation, go to realignment.supercast.com. Tina Nguyen, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So honestly, when I got the pitch for the book, I thought this was going to be a 2024 era. Let's talk about MAGA. Let's talk about Trump, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the more I read, the more I was just fascinated by in the the fact that in many ways our careers track mm-hmm. with each other just in slightly different eras. So oh my God, really? what I mean by that is you entered into like the conservative activism ecosystem. I kind of call it a welfare state. Um, that's kind of my word on it. Um, in 2008, I came into that same space in 2015. And just the difference in how the institutions worked, the issue sets, all these things are just really fascinating. I think this is a real cool opportunity to kind of uh, help people just understand how the right works, how activism works, and how the uh, structure of American politics works. So mm. let's kind of start here. 2008, you're in college, you've transferred to Claremont McKenna. What would make you interested in joining the political right during Barack Obama's heyday, like at a biographical oh. level? Oh, man. Um, so there are two factors that went into it and like admittedly just for everyone who's listening i'm i'm asian american and my parents are refugees from vietnam hopefully Nguyen tipped you off but um we i grew up in boston my parents were really focused on education and so they sent me to this super elite private school on scholarship but the older i got the more i started realizing and the more my parents started like just demonstrating to me that in order to get ahead in American society, like there are skills that you have to know, intangible skills, in order to, you know, build a career, build a place in society, have a like track record, blah, 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 blah. And while my parents were like throwing education at me and were like, oh my God, get into Harvard and then you'll be set, like, they were affiliated with Harvard too, but then like just realized that that wasn't enough. So my mom got a PhD from the School of Education there, but then was like, wait, okay, now I'm an adjunct and I'm making how much again? (laughs) This is not enough. Uh, And my father, who was teaching at Harvard for a bit and then like was part of the medical community in Boston, started realizing, wait, no, people need to have money in America in order to get ahead. So his decision was to go into multi-level marketing schemes and- at a certain, like, on this, on my family's status, not just like financial, but social status, just like plummeted. Cause that's, you don't do that in America. And you definitely don't do it if you're like a Kennedy or a Taylor or a Forbes. And when my parents started the quick going, thing like, that really matters yes. here is that you're all this is happening while you're going to like a really great like prep school. So it's yeah, not just like, that you're just kind of like in the suburbs and there's MLMs going on. Like this is very like déclassé relative to the actual context you're living in. Exactly, exactly. So when my parents were like, hey, let's go like pitch Mark. Let's go pitch this Melaleuca thing to Tina's friend's parents. They're like all of a sudden I just stopped getting invited to hang out with them. And I'm like, uh, why don't I have friends anymore? Uh <laughs> And then the older I got and the more people were obsessed with getting into colleges, 
um, the more I realized that I just didn't have the resources to compete with them. Like they were going to like these weren't people who just had SAT tutors and such. They were going to like drama camps and interlock in Michigan or like dance classes at the Martha Graham Academy in New York or like somehow getting internships at the United Nations. And it was because this girl had an uncle who was there. And I'm like, I don't know jack shit. So I could work my ass off and I could have all of the teachers in the world write me the best recommendations. But like if I failed just once, that was it for me. And my senior year, I got A's in pretty much everything except for a C plus or a D in calculus. And that was it for any of my like elite college dreams. Um, the second factor that played into it was that I was a big, big nerd about the American founding. Like, I grew up in Boston. I lived down the street from Peacefield, which was John Adams's mansion. Um, every corner you turned was just, here's the history of the American Revolution. Here's what the founding fathers were all about. Here were the ideals that we wanted to live up to as a country that we kind of started from basically nothing and then built into a big ass something like a massive, amazing something. And so third, third factor was that there was a boy that I chased to Claremont <laughs> and uh, he also ended up being a very big right wing personality in the future. But back when we were in high school, he was like very ambitious, had almost all of the things that we were both trying to strive for. Um, but then also just didn't get into those colleges because we were poor. I think that was basically what it was. So he ended up going to Claremont McKenna in California, which is this universe, this is college that's affiliated with a lot of deeply conservative organizations and was like, hey, you should transfer here with me. And so I look it up and they're like, do you want a career, like an actual career where you're doing important things? And do you want to study the founding fathers for a living? Like, that's a thing we do here. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go. I'd love to do this. So I end up there and I'm a research scholar at the uh, Salvatore Institute for the study of individual freedom in the modern world, uh, which ostensibly is for like helping professors who are researching the founding fathers and American politics with their work. But then they were starting to go like, hey, do you want to go hang out at the Claremont Institute? And it was just like full steam from there. I think the thing that's really fascinating that people don't understand about the the modern right, especially when it comes to the ecosystem, is that if you're a smart, precocious person, there's almost just like unlimited opportunities in front of you. And not just like in a sketchy sense, like I, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I first got attracted to the political right uh, because like when I was an undergrad at University of Oregon, like there were just if you're interested in foreign policy, which is like my main focus area, there are countless like fellowships that let you meet like interesting people that like expect pretty big things of you. There's very much this like culture of like, hey, like you're a researcher or an undergrad fellow or an intern now, but you're mm -hmm. on this path kind of leading you somewhere. Whenever I would talk to like my left-leaning friends about this, like they would say there's nothing like that at all. Um, on the left side of the dial. And I'd be curious, like, as someone who's like come up in that ecosystem, why do you think that dichotomy exists? Because the typical answer here from people is like, oh, well, that doesn't exist because like the left controls all the institutions and therefore, but like, th I think there's a deeper like juxtaposition that actually exists mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Um. So actually, when I ended up going to mainstream media, I lay all this out in the book. I briefly was working on covering progressive movements because I was coming into it with the assumption that it operated in some similar level to the right. And I'm just like going around talking to people and I'm like, there's, there's nothing here. There is no like group of older people who have established themselves in politics who are like trying to teach younger people how to become members of political, like the political class and political society. Like, mm -hmm. The, there was this one group I spoke to around 2015 called the New Leaders Council, and they were I think I ran into one of their members at a party and she was pitching it as something that was so new and so unusual. And I'm just thinking, wait, that's it like this. You consider this you consider this a thing. So I sit down with them and they just lay out exactly what has happened to the Democratic Party's infrastructure, which is like it's nothing. It's just a whole bunch of like angry 
like on the progressive level, there's just like a whole bunch of like young activists who want the future to happen now, but they don't plan ahead. Like they mm-hmm. like they want it to happen really, really quickly. And they'll kind of bulldoze over anything that's older telling them, hey, maybe you should stop. And that's just sort of the history of progressivism over and over and over again. So like there's been no time to build those institutions, no culture of like I want to invest in the future uh, and there and like on the flip side, it's no like young people looking at older people being like, all right, we will work together on this. It's just like a constant state of warfare. Um, what also didn't help was that the Democrats were kind of good at this up through 2008. And then during the election, um, Obama got really pissed off at the Democratic National Committee because they were really in the tank for Hillary. And so he was like, well, I've got. Obama for America, which is my incredible grassroots organization, when I become president, I'm I'm like not really going to trust the DNC. So I'm going to give it to Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She can dick around with it and do whatever. And in the meantime, I'm going to use OFA to like drive people out to turn out the vote, yada, yada, yada. It failed miserably. And that's how you got the Tea Party movement of 2010. Um and the worst thing about not like hollowing out the D triple the DNC like that is that they just didn't invest in didn't have the resources to find a farm team. Like these were guys who were supposed to identify people at like the town level, the local mm-hmm. level, up to the state level, who'd be like, all right, you could be a good like democratic politician for the future. So let's support you. Let's like groom you from the ground up. Like that just didn't exist. So like Well, Wright has something like the American Legislative Exchange Council, which literally finds state legislators and bring them to boot camps. We're like, all right, here's how you do it. Wright's model bills that, like, you know, can be passed around different states. I think the thing that's so fascinating here is you kind of just gave a really interesting history of like kind of what goes wrong um, on the Democratic Party side. And this, and this is actually an issue affecting the right with Donald Trump and MAGA, where in an anti-institutional moment individuals become the center of everything. So in an ideal world, if you're a Democratic Party hack, you have 2008 happen. Obama has all this energy. He's made, um, he's formed this combination of like the establishment and all this grassroots, like newly online Netroots energy. And you'd be able to transition that into the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party. And then you would actually have the Democratic Party, even during midterm elections where Obama is on the ticket, able to turn people out again. That doesn't happen. That's your OFA versus DNC thing. So I think when it's come to Donald Trump, I think the thing that's probably different between when I came into the space in 2015, when you did the same in 2011, 2008, is that the Republican Party is much more oriented around the individual that is Donald Trump, as opposed to like the conservative movement. Like I'm sure we knew guys and gals when we were 22 who were like, oh yeah, like I'm a conservative. Like, mm-hmm. and maybe like Mitt Romney or John McCain or, you know, Michelle Bachman, like they are kind of on top of that. But underlying there was the foundation. It feels like Trump is the foundation mm-hmm. now. It really does. And that's sort of what I've always believed is that the conservative movement had no immune system towards a populist demagogue. Like, if you go back 60 or so years to the beginning of the Goldwater Revolution and like the creation of the conservative movement, it was always with the idea of like, okay, society's moving forward way too quickly. We need to drag it back a little bit. Um, we need to have people there who are te- who are standing forward it, telling them stop. But we also believe in limited government, um, states' rights, free markets, like, and that kind of goes back and forth depending on the needs of the specific generation. But they were always like core principles. And then Trump comes along and with them comes this reckoning within the Republican base where they're like, wait, no, they want populism instead. Oh, ah, oh shoot. Shit, 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 shit. Um, can I swear here? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> they, like, shit, shit, shit. What do we do here? And it turns into this thing where the institution of the conservative movement is suddenly like, how do we survive this guy who clearly wants to tear us down? How do we survive this guy who's like, really anti-heritage, like anti-heritage foundation, which is like unthinkable back in the day. So Mm -hmm. you either change your institution, you pivot your policies in order to protect like the structure of power and the networks and like basically people wanting to still have friends and not think that they've wasted decades of their life for nothing. Or you turn into one of those people that's like, okay, no, I'm standing up for your beliefs. And then all of a sudden, boom, like you're done. 
Like you're out yeah. of the movement. You're out of the, you're like, you're kicked out of your own community, really. I think the thing that's hard here, and this is why my politics are complicated, where, because it's easy in 2024, especially to kind of just lament Trump and say, oh, like if only the establishment had had, uh, you know, the proper immune reaction to Trump in 2015. But I think part of what made Trump so viable in the first place, and I think what made him like, you know, a, definitely a breath of fresh air was the fact that so much of what had been built up into 2015 actually was broken, actually like wasn't reflective. I mean, like the fact that like Donald Trump was the only Republican on the stage in 2015 who'd say the Iraq war was a bad idea. I think that right. spoke to how insular and circular it was. So can you just kind of talk about, and you kind of experience this when you're going to, you know, dinners at Claremont McKenna and like how insulated things were in these Wednesday, um, Wednesday meetings of Governor Norquist, like how ossified and kind of separated was this broad ecosystem we're describing from the actual voters um, who at some point they're supposed to be representing or at least channeling um, mm -hmm. their problems in a productive direction? Oh, my God, it was so insular. Like, when you get into that movement, sure, it's great to be mentored, but you also have to be selected. And if, and I think, at least for me, you had to display a specific type of personality and a very specific type of um, ideology in order to get ahead. Like out of the Claremont Institute, my cohort, obviously there was Chuck Johnson, who I think was more, um, I kind of go into this in the book as he like detaches from me and has his own life. I feel like he was used more as like a very convenient tool for a lot of people in power who would like drop him at the moment he started getting to like Chuck Johnson-y. Uh, but if you kind of strayed outside the boundaries of that like societal like mold that they put you in, which was like straight edge, really into the founding fathers, wasn't vain at all, wasn't like um like didn't really want to interact with the pores on the ground, as it were, um, then you would definitely be led into the club. And and to, uh, to pause you there real quick, and this is yeah. why I just really enjoy your writing, because I think I myself and a lot of listeners to this podcast have been in the interviews you're describing, where the way you kind of tell the story, you meet with someone, and then there's like an order of words or a specific concept you drop. So for example, you're talking, okay, like in this context, I need to highlight that I'm a center-right libertarian who still believes mm -hmm. X, Y, or Z. Like there really is. And I just, when I, once again, whenever I interact with like center-left institutions, it feels as if, but, but I think the one thing is because the right is shut out of mainstream institutions, mm -hmm. um, it's less about like where you like went to school and right. more about like those specific signalers. So if you're on the left, I think, the, the version of this is like, oh, I, I went to like Harvard or I went to Yale or I went to like UC right. Berkeley and that serves as it. But because the right just doesn't have that same pool of like academic credentialing, it's the actual things you say and the projections mm -hmm. you have that serve as like the ideological like credential, if anything. Yeah, not just that, but like also there are like institutes themselves. If you are like, I don't know, I remember running into a girl on the Hill who was like, oh my God, I want to be in like PR and speech writing. The speech writers fellowship at the Claremont Institute is like the biggest thing that people want to apply for right now. And like, oh, that's really interesting because like they were real nerdy things back in the day. But now if you want to be like, no, I am a smart person who's aligned with populist MAGA ideals, you want to be in that, you want to be in that tiny cohort of like 30 to 50 people who hang out for a week in Newport Beach on the mm -hmm. like, basking in the sun and discussing uh oh god what's the hot thing these days um the advent of multiculturalism and how it's going to be bad for freedom of speech in the future or something like that so i think what's really interesting about your background tina is that you enter into the space through the like nerdy political philosophy category 
which is actually a little different than the like research foreign policy think tank place I entered into. But you also kicked the book off describing TPUSA, so like the really like activist event. And then we've also been talking about the type of person who wants to work in PR or work at the Republican National Committee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If you look at these different parts of the ecosystem, like what's the most important part? Like what if you like, kind of look at like what sets the agenda versus like what's kind of like window dressing? What do you see as like the most like pivotal when it comes to kind of defining the way things look? Mm. It's the reaction to what is happening on the left. I think the conservative movement has always been okay. Reactionary is a pretty like loaded term, I think, but it has always been like looking at what the left wants the future to be and being like, ah, do I want this? Not really. No. And the degree to and like how you want to push back against it and the degree to which you want to push back against it ends up like determining your career path in your community for sure. But like if you are on the right, it's because you believe the left is doing something pretty harmful to American society at all. And I think one of the things about like the Turning Point USA conference that I attended that still had the same DNA as the Uh, conferences that I attended as a kid were the career fairs. Like there would always be just booths and booths and booths and tables of people from all of these conservative institutions um, that were like, all right, what kind of job do you want in the movement? Do you want to like maybe like get this Daily Wire subscription and like spread content around? Or do you want to go to the Leadership Institute and learn how to run a political campaign? Mm -hmm. Like that, like it is so many paths that you could take. And there is a and like at a certain point, you're just you'll you'll find your path. You just have to figure out from your when you're a kid, like, where do you want to go? You know, something I'm curious when I was thinking about this as you were um, describing the pitfalls of activist organizing on the left and then right. And then also describing Turning Point USA, does Turning Point USA actually work? Here's what I mean by that question. Um, you know, TPSA mm-hmm. was founded um, in the 2010s. Um, Charlie Kirk is very much using uh, this narrative of like the Democrats are increasingly socialistic. You have all this Obama stuff, so we need to have this like free market centered response that makes a generational argument. Obviously, over time, especially during the Trump era, the focus has become much more socio cultural. Like lots of good reporting on this, but like at a mm-hmm. baseline level. Um, it doesn't feel as if the millennial and the Gen Z generations are any more, I'd say, like pro-capitalism or mm-hmm. any more like right-oriented. There are interesting things like, hey, like working class, like men especially are leaning more to the right now. That's a real thing. But I don't think that's being driven mm-hmm. by TPUSA college-centric activism. So I'm just curious, how would you like assess? So like pretend you're like a donor advisor for a right-wing mm-hmm. billionaire who's funding TPUSA. Like, how would you assess its performance over the past 10 years? I mean, I guess it would depend on what kind of right wing donor I'd want to be. Like if I were Charles Koch is the one who's still alive, right? I think so. Yes. Yeah. David Koch was the more like ideological libertarian brother who was like dropping Ludwig von Mises texts on my head uh, during my free seminars. But if you are the type of person who wants the children to understand the benefits of capitalism and free trade. And that is your primary objective while also like stopping Donald Trump and saving the democracy and the democratic institutions that you remember as a kid, like small D democratic institutions. Uh, Charlie Kirk, Charlie Kirk and TPUSA have not done that. Um, If you are a donor who really wants to make sure that the next generation of young voters is captured and will vote Republican, maybe no matter what, then TPUSA is successful. Like, I think this didn't exist when you and I were in college, but it's to a much stronger degree now, and especially um, in these recent months with the Israel-Palestine protests on college campuses, Expressing a view that is contrary to the overwhelming, like, liberal-leaning student body has just become way more socially suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of, part of it was definitely the way that the Trump era kind of jacked up that narrative. But the 
broader sense of what is and is not okay on the liberal side and the progressive left and the like ability to enact social media retribution on someone who did the wrong, who said the wrong thing is just like worse, 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 worse. Um, and I think that's why a lot of younger Gen Z people are becoming more right leaning because like they will be, they will shut up on campus. They will put their heads down and try to get good grades and get out. But then internally they're like, wait, no, this is kind of fucked up. I really don't like not being able to say what it is that I want to say. And I think that's especially poisonous on college campuses because I always believe that kids are allowed to fuck up, you know, like maybe they'll have a crazy idea in college, but that was college and they'll grow out of it or something. But like they have to be able to say it out loud. And that just doesn't exist on college campuses anymore. Like when I was younger, um, my first I this is a chapter I had to cut from the book, but for like narrative flow purposes, the first actual event that I went to at CMC was a Carl Rove talk. Um and you know, Carl Rove, early two thousand eight, contra- <laughs> early two thousand eight. Yes, back when he was like considered a fundamental pillar of the Republican Party, and all of these students from Pitzer, which was the neighboring super progressive lefty college across the street, came over and protested super loudly. And the Claremont students were sitting inside in their nice little suits and heel kitten heels, going like, "Yes, Mr. Rove, I'd love to hear what you say and maybe press back against you." And then outside, they're just like screaming, "Architect of terror!" and I think they dyed our fountain red and then tried to perform a citizen's arrest on um, Karl Rove. Uh, but the point of the story, though, is that, like, if that had been in the era of smartphones yep. or that would have turned into a nationwide incident and, like, people's faces would be online, someone would be tracking down whoever did what thing and try to ruin their life. And like, it would have just been so poisonous and turned into a national narrative of some sort. Uh, it In our case, though, it was just kind of a boring little campus spat that everyone kind of forgot eventually. And whoever was there will, like, look back and sort of cringe at the way they acted, whether it was the Pitzer student or, you know, me who ran to my... A college dorm and got a giant American flag and started chanting USA at back at them. I think something I'm curious about then is what is your advice for young people who are coming of age on these campuses? I think the thing that unites both of my, your and my generational experiences is that I think our politics have clearly shifted from when we were, were in this like formative period, but we just had the period. Like I don't actually have any, I don't know about you. I'm actually curious. Like I actually don't have any like regrets about like spending a lot of time like on the right, like I was doing this in Eugene, Oregon. So it actually, I think it gave me alternate perspectives I wouldn't have heard. I think it really like enhanced my experience. I have no like regrets over anything I really did. But I think in today's era, that exploration category is much weaker, but also the ways that one performs are just way different. So for example, you're writing in 2008, 2009, everyone's blogging, you're writing, you're you're emailing with people versus like performing on TikTok or engaging in like anti-social activism. It just seems like the the window of opportunities really just like slammed shut. So I'm curious what you would think about that. Like opportunity to develop Oh, just explore yourself just like- safely. Just like to just say, mm. hey, like I'm going to check out the right now. I'm going to check out the left now. I'm going to do this, this, or that. It just feels as if there is not as much. The, the, the urge to just put your head down mm-hmm. seems to be much smarter of a play from a pure pragmatism perspective than it was during our white college years. And that's kind of depressing when I kind of say it that way. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, huh. I don't think that I would have been able to get out of the the, like, the conservative media ghetto, as it were, um, if it hadn't been for things moving a lot slower back then. And uh, when I say conservative media ghetto, it's a uh, it's a term that my uh, buddy Matt Lewis used to describe this um, thing that he noticed. He's like a couple decades older than me, and he's been around longer than I have. But he always noticed that there were really good journalists who were working in the confines of conservative media. Um, Some of the outlets were actually interested in doing journalism. Some of those places became like thinly veiled hack job machines, which is not my experience at The Daily Caller, but definitely something that I started falling 
like accidentally falling into afterwards. And that was sort of like, I can't do this anymore. I'm getting out. But there are a whole bunch of people I know, um, and I'm sure you know them as well, who are just amazing journalists, but their sin to the wider like journalism community is that they originated at a conservative outlet. So whenever they try to apply elsewhere, it, like they're either like fully rejected outright and will never get into a place like the New York Times, or they become the like token conservative who I think back then would be just sort of tolerated and their eyes would be rolled at. But now if you look at Barry Weiss at the New York Times, like she was actively hounded out of that institution over some like kind of minor shit compared to what's happening now. Uh, like even James Bennett, who used to be the editor in chief of, was it the editor in chief? No, no, he was. He, he was, was the like editor the, of the. Um, yeah, yeah, he was the editor of the op-ed pages, and then he was like, and then when he let Tom Cotton write a op-ed, he had to leave because of it because the entire newsroom had turned against him, and I don't think that I would have even gotten past the HR filters at Condé Nast if I left the Daily Caller in my resume, but now just like having a childhood dalliance with anything remotely right wing suddenly shuts off half of the world to you. Like you, you just the, get punished for it. I think to, to, to add to the inside baseball here, you know what the funny exception to the role you're describing and a bunch of people come to mind, including someone like Caitlin Collins, there was this weird 2015 Trump interregnum where a bunch of really smart millennial journalists were able to like be at the daily caller National Review, like this is someone like Elena Plot, who's at the Atlantic, but was at the New York Times, where because Trump was so out of nowhere, the Daily Caller and these conservative like publications were able to give like really useful coverage um, and had a lot bunch of access that made it so there was this like tiny, tiny window where all of that coverage and access and just background you'd provided you just meant mm -hmm. from 2015 to 2017, you could kind of make that jump. But that's why every once in a while there'll be a, wait, Caitlin Collins wrote some insane Daily Caller op-ed and people are like but talking about she it now. She's to. a CNN. Like that's, like that's what you do at a publication like that. Like you have to write some right-wing thing because content needs to be put online so people can click it. I'm curious uh, what so ultimately and the, the Tucker story goes in a bunch of different directions, but I think it's so interesting that you're writing about um, early daily caller Tucker because that is a Tucker. Tucker goes to different brand iterations who's very much making this really valid and I think still accurate critique. But the, that the fact that the, the right lacks a New York Times is actually a huge structural weakness. And by that, he obviously isn't referring to like the op-ed page. He's talking about the actual like shoe, you know, wearing out your shoe leather uh, reporting side of things. Um, obviously, the Daily Caller had kind of, sometimes it does that, other times it very much doesn't do that. Um, why is the right fundamentally struggled with the, we're going to provide mainstream quality journalism consistently um, obviously, we have to exclude the Wall Street Journal because that's mm. once again driven by people buying those corporate subscriptions that are there for their market coverage. Right. And also the Wall Street Journal was independent before Rupert Murdoch bought it. And I think what happened is that donors don't want reporting. Donors want to win. And if there is a chance that the organization that they're funding is going to help them win, then they would rather do that than have like an independent organization that will occasionally write against their interests. I think that's a pretty terrible way to run a newsroom, not going to lie. Um, if there had ever been a like conservative organization that sort of evolved naturally into being a place that reported on general, like current events, whatever, with a rightward tilt, but that was funded by subscriptions and mm -hmm. like, advertising in, in the structural way and like a newspaper in the mainstream would be that would have succeeded i think um but if you want to launch a newsroom you're gonna need like a million plus dollars and you just can't raise that capital on your own without asking someone for money you know, that's so interesting because like, as I'm hearing you say that, it's kind of like there's a world where, you know, a Dallas Morning News or one of the more conservative leaning, um, you know, regional newspapers can kind mm -hmm. of like level up in that way. Um, yeah. But OC obviously Register. like they're, yeah. yeah. OC Register was one, I think, too. Yeah, no, yeah. Orange, exactly. Orange County Register. But even, even in that category, it just kind of, 
I think a benefit you the, the thing that really helps you if you're a center left institution or organization is that because the mainstream is just so center left adjacent, you don't have to say we're center left. Like the New York Times is obviously like liberal, but no one at the New York Times is actually saying, no, we are the liberal newspaper. Um, versus right. if you're on the right, even the Orange County Register, that's a real paper. But over time, it just became increasingly like we're like the conservative thing. And the second you say you kind of fail at the mission there, I, I'd love for you to explain something that isn't going to make sense to people who don't live in this world. You keep using the word donor. What do you mean by the term donor in contrast to investor or subscriber? Because when Tucker is talking about the early Daily Caller, when you're talking about how you're writing things, you're saying, hey, look, we need clicks. So, because you need advertising dollars. And if you need advertising dollars, what do you need donors for? Like, how does that side of conservative media work relative to like mm -hmm. what you're doing at Pac or what you were doing at Vanity Fair? Yeah. Donor, like investor implies someone who is simply there to make a profit and money. Whereas donor, they come in with a really ideological mission first and foremost, um, which I th which like definitely drove a lot of early conservative journalism and definitely places like the Daily Caller and Breitbart. Breitbart, I think, like barely made money after um, Google kicked it off its programmatic advertising. Um, and like right now, who knows how long it's going to last as long as like someone is putting money into it. But without donors a lot of or like without people who are specifically there to want you to make an ideological point um your model is going to collapse and as we've seen with places like Huffington Post um name like name your inter like name your internet organization and name your internet based news organization that has failed because they just couldn't bring in money mm -hmm. like it's hard to make money on the internet just using ad sales alone. And the caller was founded early enough where they thought, okay, maybe this is possible. It clearly was not possible. And that's why the Daily Caller News Foundation, which was launched like adjacent to the newsroom, became was weirdly structured in a way that allowed it to be a nonprofit organization. And so they had to lower tax burden and could take like different types of money. I think at some point, um, actually, I'm not going to go down that way. I'm not exactly sure how to describe it without being like legally um problematic. Yeah, but it was that time when the um when I think Max Tani, this media reporter, pulled up a don't like a memo from the foundation being like, "Hey, if you want a certain area of coverage done, we can like hire someone to do it. Just give us two hundred grand." Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's like so interesting here is that they're real, and this is why I think. The, 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 especially like your younger years are so fascinating because, like, there really was this like openness to the ecosystem. Like, the actual, like, because here's the thing like, it's, it's easy to look back on the daily caller or the donor investor relationship and think to yourself, like, oh, like, it's all just cynical. There actually really was like an open period where it's 2010, Facebook is there. All this advertising money is transitioning to the internet. Like you could, with a straight face, put together a pitch deck and say, "Oh, hey, and by the way, there's a super underserved conservative audience who doesn't mm -hmm. want the New York Times, who doesn't want CNN, and oh, by the way, they don't want to pay for things. So we're going to give them what they want. We're going to combine the bikini pictures with serious, serious, serious reporting." So now that you know, you know, your 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 puck, and you know, a lot of this stuff is like paywalled. Like, what's it like to come? And what what do you think it's like for like a younger person to come? into the media ecosystem today when there's just so much pessimism and ambitions mm. by its very like let me put it this way if you if you had launched puck like 10 years ago someone would have in the back of their mind like hey maybe this is going to be like a billion dollar company someday um somebody would i'm not saying you would but there's like a path that you could definitely see it here like oh like rather than focusing on big brands we're focusing on tina no one reads you because you're at vanity fair they're reading you because they're tina and if we get 25 people to do that that's the next big thing no one talks that way anymore so so like, what is it like in this just like, I don't want to say it's less ambitious because people mm -hmm. are still working very hard, but the possibilities just seem so much smaller. It's really small. And I think that's sort I think that's really unfortunate. Um, 
Look, I was able to kind of fill my resume gaps between the caller and like hopping into the mainstream with just pure blogging, like <laughs> reaggregation, snarky little headlines, just like constantly this orphan at a wheel, just pushing and pushing and pushing content into the world. Um, I think I was getting paid like 35 grand by the end of it. And I don't think those opportunities exist anymore. Like most of that's a lot of that's just like farmed out to content farms in other countries. Who knows how much of that's going to be replaced with AI? And, I re and I've been thinking about this for years because so many younger people come up to me asking, how do I get a job in journalism these days? And I can't look back on my own career path and be like, well, here's how I did it. Here's how you could probably do it too. Um, one piece of advice I gave, which I think was useful for about two years was try to get clips in your like regional newspaper or something because mm -hmm. they're always looking for content and as long as you like can still live with your parents and be on their health insurance you can like invest enough of your time into building your clip file that way but there is a really like kind of out there idea that i have and I don't know. I'm just like spitballing here, but I do yeah. wonder whether the path of doing like video journalism and uploading it to a platform like YouTube or something that is a big platform that still lets creators on without much of a barrier. If you can put it on there and have really strong journalism and like tell stories that are undercovered, especially in giant newsrooms, it's possible for you to just like organically build your own brand and monetize that. I think like that's what the that's what the breaking points crew is doing. I to an extent, I think that's what the realignment's doing. And like the puck model, I think is very unique because it relies on people who already had individual brands, but they came up through the um medium of print. Mm. And I don't know whether I don't know what it would be like these days to become a print journalist when you are like fresh out of college. But there are all these other openings with all these different forms of media that honestly are completely underexplored. And I'd love to be able to take advantage of them at some point. Like, God knows I've thought about starting a YouTube channel occasionally. But yeah, if you have like a little bit more risk tolerance and a creative eye towards like telling a story, making sure it's true also, and like exploring something that a mainstream organization just doesn't have the resources or vision to like look into, then by all means, go for it. I think that's actually the perfect answer because I think it gets to a real problem that the conservative ecosystem today has, which is, I'm not sure if you followed this, but um, a lot of the Turning Point USA um, brand ambassadors keep going rogue on Twitter. Um, with definitely, uh, yeah. and this isn't just like the this isn't just like the Candace Owens like uh, controversy with the Daily Wire. Like this is like actually they start tweeting and they start posting. It very quickly gets like not just like euphemistically anti-Semitic, but just like actually incontrovertibly anti-Semitic. Obviously, like not aligned with like the donors and the organization. And what the problem you kind of run into there is that every single time. Um, which is more valuable to these young 20-somethings. The fact that they now have 100,000 Twitter followers or the fact that some like donor in like Illinois is like unhappy with them. It doesn't matter. Like obviously their individuality and their ability just to post, to do a Substack, to post on YouTube, to tweet is obviously much more powerful. And it seems like another difference between our era and this era is that our eras were so much about asking permission. Like so mm. many, like I, I spent, I spent four years talking about the realignment, being like, okay, like this donor, like, would you be interested in like funding me for this thing or that thing? And oh no, like National Review said no, like boo-hoo, it's a disaster. When today, it would be obviously, if I spent four years, if I was, I guess, if I were in 20, especially in 2020 when everyone's locked up during COVID, if I were 22 and spent four years putting in the amount of work I put into, like trying to gamify the rights funding ecosystem, you could have a real, real serious channel there. So it's just like mm -hmm. such a fascinating difference of like, on the one hand, it's a bummer that you can't become like a journalist by working at your regional paper, but at mm -hmm. least at a minimum, you don't have to ask permission anymore. Mm. Yeah, I think the only 
I think the only like right wing influencer group right now that was able to get any sort of donor money to start in the first place was the Daily Wire. Like back in mm-hmm. 2018, I wrote this giant profile on Jeremy Boring, who is the uh, CEO, and he partnered with Ben Shapiro to launch the Daily Wire in like 2015, literally out of their pool house. But they managed to um, convince Ferris Wilkes to give them like X amount of money, just a seed capital. And they're like, no, we are going to like, we are going to be a money-making venture. I know that's weird. No one's ever thought about it on the right. Isn't that crazy? But we are not trying to do journalism. We are not trying to do like anything that is like, meant to quote unquote shape the narrative politically we think that there's a cultural case to be made for conservatism and we want to pursue it like the entertainment industry and like i don't think you need that much money to start a teeny little youtube channel in a pool house um and i think it was literally just it was like three people at the point including ben shapiro and the interesting thing about their growth was that they did not anticipate going into the podcast game at all. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. even a game. The entire thing was literally just like Ben Shapiro with a microphone talking directly to camera for an hour. And everyone thought that this was still a pivot to video time. So everyone's like, okay, no, we want them to like look at Ben Shapiro and listen to what he has to say. And they realized, you know what? we can sell ads against podcasts if they get like 30,000 viewers. And so that was literally what it was. It was a different revenue stream they could explore. And then all of a sudden that took off like crazy. Mm -hmm. So the point I'm trying to get to here though, is that like that company was built on individual branding and influencing as well. And Ferris Wilkes doesn't take a very active part in the coverage i think he i think he has like a non-voting share of the company and hasn't put any more money into it ever since but or at least that's what they say and the idea that you can like monetize your following directly by building that relationship with your audience is totally something the donors never anticipated and like cannot control so it's like not a surprise at all that your Turning Point USA ambassadors are going rogue because like they have the benefit of getting the TPUSA branding. But then after that, their following is their own. Their channels are their own. The like, like their brand is their brand is their own. Like they're supposed to represent Turning Point USA, but like it's because they are good at talking to an audience. Yep. But the funny thing is that I argue you could apply the same scenario to Tucker Carlson as well. Cause like he had, he had his individual branding um, going into the daily, going into Fox news. Then he changed his brand while on Fox news to get an even bigger audience. And when he was fired from Fox, everyone has been talking about like, Oh, he's not powerful anymore. He doesn't have that platform and megaphone, but he still has his following and he was able to take it with him like without Fox saying, no, you can't have this audience anymore. Like immediately, like, I'm surprised they didn't lock off his access to his Twitter feed, which is how he was able to get out from underneath Fox's thumb. They had a really strict non-compete that prevented him from going to a competitor. And we don't know what, and that could have been really broadly applied to like, I don't know, like News Nation or like Newsmax to something like The Blaze or The Daily Wire. But he was like, no, my first priority is making sure that my followers still know that I'm here. So he goes on his Twitter feed and posts like that very oblique grainy hostage video from his studio. And everyone's like, oh, good. He hasn't been silenced or canceled. We're going to follow him to the ends of the earth. And so he just like put out all of this free content for months and months and months and months in order to maintain that following. And now he's monetizing it. Fox could not take that from him. Well, and the real answer here, and this clearly is going to be built into everyone's contracts from now on, Fox could not have anticipated in 2015 that Elon would acquire Twitter and Mm. Twitter would go in on, and I still think it's cockamamie, but like the, we're trying to build this into a serious video consumption platform. I would bet that, especially because when you made the reference to the pivot to video, I want to make that clear for people. Um, 2015, 2016, Mark Zuckerberg very specifically comes to believe that video is like the future of Facebook. So he starts paying people. He starts paying the Daily Caller. He starts paying Mike, like all these different um 
they paid MTV for a hot second there for a, you know, real world reboot. They were paying people to make video. I would bet that Tucker's contract said he couldn't do Facebook shows or couldn't do things like that. Ooh, and that right. no one just anticipated that Twitter, which is these bite-sized, like, you know, 120, 240 character thing, unlimited mm -hmm. characters now at the premium would just be a competing medium. So from now on, there's just probably just going to be like anything with a video, anything with a camera is just no go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really that's a really, really good point. Um, like it's probably gonna take a decade for Elon to make putting videos on Twitter X a actual, like profitable um proposition for any sort of young creator. Like I think he and Mr. Beast were feuding on Twitter for a while and yep. Elon and his texts were like, I want Mr. Beast to come over and make videos for Twitter. And Mr. Beast literally tweeted out, no, YouTube pays better. They monetize my viewership way, way, way better. I make like $4 per every thousand views or something. Like you will not offer that. If you can find a way to do that, maybe I will, but you cannot like give me some sort of you can't just like throw a lot of money at me and say, hey, go like come be on Twitter. Like he wants that money to come in on a regular and a basis thing, because I, of his yeah, content. I want to make that I want to make this really clear because Elon's and Elon definitely did this with Tucker. He's doing this with Don Lemon's new show. They're taking Twitter money and doing content deals with people. That is not YouTube. Like when we post this on YouTube, um, YouTube will pay 70 percent of that revenue to me. Um, and Elon could point out, well, hey, our ad share in terms of the percentage that you get is higher. But in Mr. Beast's defense, it doesn't matter because the overall number is just so much smaller. So sure, you get to keep 90% of $10, but you'd rather get 70% of $500. And it's unclear how, I guess, to your point, you would resolve that dynamic because Twitter, I also just don't think Twitter is set up for video um, in that long form format way. It, it actually doesn't mm -hmm. make as much sense. Right. Like, also, there's no good algorithm in place to recommend other videos. There's no, like, there's no, like, way to find new creators. There's no way to, like, get pointed to the content library of a guy who's trying to create on Twitter. Like, I don't want to spend 10 minutes trying to find one video from Tucker Carlson that he posted in, like, August of last year. Like, that's just not a good user experience at all. Um, I don't know if Elon's has I real, like has Elon thought that far in the future? I don't know. Will Twitter be like financially solvent by the time he could figure this out? Who knows either? So here's the you know last big question here. We're recording this um during the Iowa caucus, and the book is titled MAGA Diaries. And hypothetically, MAGA could have been something more than just Donald Trump. And there are a bunch of candidates, including Ron DeSantis, who clearly premised their candidacies on MAGA as a set of like, not just like ideas, but like mm -hmm. inclinations. It's kind of like an idea in the same way that like Goldwater thought became mm -hmm. something that like imbibed the rest of the Republican Party moving forward. I think they thought that MAGA would fill a similar um, space. So hypothetically, a new candidate could kind of mm -hmm. like, take up. Um, that banner and build on Trump's uh, successes and failures. Um, so here's the real question. Since Ron DeSantis is clearly not going to win uh, the Iowa caucuses or frankly, any primaries this season, and Nikki Haley, who I don't think is going to win, but I think is still building her own thing, which is a little outside mm -hmm. of MAGA. What does MAGA mean to you? And for the Republican, and no, for the conservative movement, mm -hmm. that, like you and I kind of emerged, like, what, what, what does it mean given this electoral dynamic? MAGA goes beyond policy positions like MAGA changes policy positions depending what it is that Trump says. But I also don't think that MAGA is a cult. Um, I th think MAGA is definitely a mindset to politics. It is like punch you in your mouth, kick you while you're down, express total domination in order to get your way. And Trump, I think, is obviously the best at it. I don't know what happens to the MAGA movement as a unified movement once Trump is no longer there. Um, he could designate a successor, which I think would be the easiest way to keep it together. But like, what if that successor is not as talented as Trump or as like singularly good at communicating as Trump? Uh, but 
MAGA, I think, will at least I personally refer to it as a set of tactics and a m- approach. Um, so here's my best example so far. Yeah. You know how Mike Johnson, the current speaker of the House, keeps saying he's a hardline conservative? Like he literally went to the podium, like he literally went to a press conference and was like, I'm a hard- conservative hardliner. I always have been. Sure you were, but maybe in like 2015, like the problem that he faces from within his own caucus and especially the MAGA members is that like he's cutting deals. He is like he is trying to cooperate and keep the government open. And if it means dialing back on the priorities of the MAGA members, then like so be it. But the MAGA members, instead of like doing protest votes or whatever, are like, we will shut down the government. And if it take and if it if needs be, we will remove you as speaker because you are not hewing to our ideals closely enough. However, if you put like Chip Roy or something in the uh, hot seat of the speakership, um, Chip Roy being the te- uh, the Texas congressman right now who's trying to shut down the government again over border issues, you put him in, someone on that wing is going to get really mad and for whatever reason and try to motion to vacate him. I really do like love your definition of MAGA because it's also useful. It also, once again, it explains I think it explains the dilemma that any leader is going to run into because at a minimum, there is just no one is going to be better at the like punching your opponent in the throat part than Trump. Um, Vivek like does it when he's going against like B tier CNN hosts, but I think it's gonna be pretty straightforward for just in the same way that no one had heard of Vivek five years ago. There's mm-hmm. another person who I think would be better at what Vivek does than Vivek does right now, um, four years from now. Um, so just kind of understanding that, like, there's just a, I don't know, it doesn't really leave you with anything actionable, but just like understanding like MAGA as like a tactic or or a vibe or like a, a, a way of approaching the world instead of the DeSantis view, which is like, okay, so we're going to go after the world corporations. We're going to send up to Dr. Fauci, not, not understanding that the reaction of a MAGA voter would be, okay, that's nice, but Donald Trump still does that better than you do it. Uh, and right. therefore, there's just like a limit there. Or, hey, it sounds like you're doing a great job as governor. You should keep doing that for another four years. That is just mm-hmm. always going to be the response you try to make MAGA too literal, kind of. Yeah. I think the issue with DeSantis, too, is that when conservative donors were looking at DeSantis versus Trump, they chose DeSantis not necessarily because he was like a MAGA hardliner, but oh, you're going to make things calmer and do things in a constitutional manner, and it's not going to be dramatic, and we'll have all the nice little things that MAGA people want but and Trump voters want, but we're going to do it calmer. And that did not vibe. That did not match what the populace wanted. And I think a lot of Ma- and like MAGA is definitely inclined to work backwards and justify something constitutionally after it's done rather than like wait to see whether it's a good idea. And if it's a good idea, if it's not a good idea that doesn't like comport with the boundaries of what the conservative movement wants, they will not do it because those are the laws and the laws have to be obeyed or some shit. No, actually, actually, and that's once again, I think the Steve Bannon aspect too, like the understanding the Leroy Jenkins is actually kind of the point um, as opposed to doing it reasonably uh, is really helpful. So let's just like close here. Um, What you, I feel as if this book is kind of, uh, especially if Trump doesn't win in November, I think this book will just like close like a period of your life, like as a journalist and understand this all like being tied together. Like, what do you think like the next period of your journalistic career from like a topic and focus perspective? Like, what do you think it's going to be? Mm. If Trump doesn't win. Yeah. But I want to put it this way. Mm. Eventually we're going to move on from talking about MAGA into something new. Mm. Like, what do you think is something new that you'd be interested in covering would be? Mm. If I were still in politics, I think the right-left dichotomy is still going to exist and possibly be a lot deeper. Um, I've sort of carved out a weird space for myself in the mainstream world as someone who can talk to Republicans. And the way that I think a lot of my Republican sources have described their interactions with most journalists, which is like, oh, no, you're just kind of like sneering at our beliefs and think we're all knuckle-dragging troglodytes who don't have like believe like not just beliefs but like an actual considered approach to the world that we've thought about for years and why we want society to look the way that we do 
And I'm going to I think I'm going to be keep, I'm going to keep covering whatever that looks like, because um, I don't know, unless that wonderful future I came up with from the future of video journalism comes true, like these institutions will be ossified. They will be hiring from the same talent pool um, and they will keep, unfortunately, getting it wrong. And look, I don't really consider myself a person of the right anymore I'm, or like on the right in like a loyalty aspect but i don't like it when people get things wrong and like that's why i've kept covering this beat because i just want to get it right and we're gonna be working to get it right for a while tina this has been super great thank you for joining me on the realignment oh this is fun thanks for having me hope you enjoyed this episode if you learned something like this sort of mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.